Hey, local church. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. Super stoked that I can be sharing with you guys today. Super grateful to be here. Um, we're gonna, not going to waste any time. We're going to dig right in. Uh, today we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting in verse 27. So let's turn there. It says this, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Heavenly Father, speak to us today through your word, edify us, strengthen us, challenge us, reveal to us more of who you are. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, Jaden preached a brilliant message called Christ Crucified. Today, I want to expand on one of his points from that message. And I just want to point out, this is totally accidental. Him and I have been working on these separately for a while, but uh, God works and it's, it's awesome. So today I want to talk about holiness. More specifically, I suppose I want to talk about why the kingship of Jesus should compel us to live holy lives. Before we dig into that, I want to set some context for our discussion here, and I want to dig a little bit into that passage in Mark that we just read. First, I want to talk about the word Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed. When Peter declares Jesus the Messiah, he is calling him the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the word Messiah is associated with lots of different people in Israel's history. Uh, it's used for kings, priests, prophets. All of these people are called God's anointed. They're messiahs. Throughout the Old Testament, as more and more people were called anointed, an archetype developed. And as God revealed more and more through the prophets, there developed an expectation that one day God would send his own messiah, his own anointed one that would be the culmination of nearly 2,000 years of Jewish history and Jewish hope. The Messiah would surpass everyone that came before in every possible way. So when Peter calls Jesus the Messiah in this moment of confession, the word comes with all of this weight. All of this baggage from the Old Testament is in that word. In the Jewish mind, all of these things about, um, about priest, prophet, king, God's expected Messiah, all of these things became associated with the term Messiah. Peter, in declaring Jesus Messiah, is declaring him as God's chosen king. The second thing I want to talk about is the setting. Uh, I think it's really important that Jesus and the disciples, they're in the Roman Empire, but specifically they're in Caesarea Philippi. The Roman Empire had a level of relative religious freedom. It was an incredibly diverse empire with people from all over the place, and they welcomed other gods and other faith traditions. And Caesarea Philippi was sort of a hot spot for idol worship and pagan worship. Uh, there were temples and shrines to every kind of god from all different, uh, all different types of faith. Uh, and this was because the city was a trading hub. Um, and so there were people passing through all the time, trading goods. And in the exchange of goods came the exchange of ideas. Um, and so people in the Roman Empire could worship whomever they wanted and however they wanted. Um, but there was one rule. No matter which god or gods you decided to worship, you needed to worship Caesar. Caesar was king, which meant that Caesar was God. So these two things I think are really important, and they're going to frame our discussion today. 
um, as we move forward, talking about the kingship of Jesus and why that should compel us to live holy lives. So chapter 8 in Mark's narrative uh, it functions as a focal point. Uh, over 16 chapters, Mark tells this brilliant story that slowly reveals the reality of Jesus' kingship. The book is essentially broken down into two movements, chapters 1 through 8 and 9 through 16. In chapters 1 to 8, we see the disciples slowly coming to the realization that Jesus is, in fact, this long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And this culminates, of course, in Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. In the following eight chapters, it shows the disciples slowly discovering what it actually means for Jesus to be the Messiah. They learn what his Messiahship looks like. And the disciples function as an entry point for us as readers today, because as they learn these things about Jesus, so do we. So if Jesus is king, what does his kingship look like? Well, Mark tells us immediately after Peter's confession. In verse 31, it says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer these things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed, and rise after the third day. Then it says he spoke openly about this. So he wasn't trying to hide any of these details from his followers. Jesus tells the disciples immediately after they confess him as king that the nature of him being Messiah is to suffer. And this isn't a new idea. We see glimpses of this in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, for example. Jesus isn't spouting new ideas. There was precedent for him saying these things. But still Peter tried to rebuke him. And we'll get into Peter's rebuke a little bit later because I think it says something interesting about us and our own hearts. Immediately after this, Jesus explains to the disciples what's required of them in his kingdom. Calling the crowd along, this is in verse 34, calling a crowd along with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus outlines pretty clearly what's expected of his disciples. And immediately after this, we have the transfiguration on the mount, where God grants Jesus authority as Messiah. We see the anointing taking place saying to the disciples, listen to my, he is my son, listen to him. The title son of God is a royal term. In the Old Testament, the kings were referred to as the son of God. So when the father calls Jesus his son, this isn't a, simply a reference to the second person of the Trinity. That is present, of course, but this is Jesus being anointed as God's chosen king, the expected Messiah. So in less than one page of our Bible, only, only a, you know, a dozen or so verses, we learn four really important things. We learn, one, that Jesus is king. Two, Jesus' kingship is defined by sacrifice. We learn that Jesus' kingdom is defined by sacrifice. And four, just in case you didn't want to believe what Jesus was saying, the Father tells us that Jesus is king in the transfiguration. So let's go back to Peter's rebuke. Right after Jesus says that he must suffer and die, Mark goes on and says this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. Jesus doesn't, or Peter doesn't like what he's hearing. Peter doesn't want a king that has to suffer. 
Peter wants God's kingdom, but he doesn't want, to, want Jesus to have to suffer in order to achieve the kingdom on earth. Peter wants God's kingdom, but he doesn't want it God's way. Because God's way requires sacrifice and suffering, and Jesus calls us into this by asking us to take up our cross in imitation of him. We want this too sometimes, don't we? How great would it be if Jesus didn't require anything of us? If we could live however we wanted, but still reap the rewards of the kingdom of God? What if we could worship Jesus and Peter? This is why the setting of Peter's confession is so significant. Our culture today is much like Caesarea Philippi. We are surrounded by ideas, ideologies, religions, and lifestyles. And just like the disciples 2,000 years ago, Jesus is calling us to abandon these false gods, declare him as Messiah, and pick up our cross. We can't worship both Jesus and Caesar. There was a season in my life where I tried to worship both. I was studying theology at a Christian university. I was attending a church in Toronto. On the surface, I was doing all the right things. It looked like I was worshiping Jesus as my king. The problem was is that I only wanted to treat him as savior, but I didn't want to treat him as king. I thought I could have both. Jesus would save me, but Caesar would rule me. I would live the way Caesar wanted me to live. When we try to balance these two things, it doesn't work out for us. We lose sight of Jesus and we fall headfirst into Caesar's kingdom. And that's what happened to me. I won't go into too much detail, but essentially what happened was I tried to have the best of both worlds. I thought I could have a dual citizenship to these two kingdoms, God's kingdoms and, and Rome. But Rome got the best of me. I lost sight of Jesus, and eventually I didn't even want him to be my savior. I tried to find salvation and kingship in the things of the world. But that's, we can't live that way. We can't serve two masters. Jesus requires obedience. And obedience to Jesus means rejection of Caesar, rejection of Rome, rejection of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is saying that if we want to be a part of his kingdom, we must live as he did, in complete submission to the will of God. And this is a tough pill to swallow. We don't like to talk about the work required because it often feels too works-based. We fear putting our trust in good works to save us. Or maybe we use that as an excuse for not living holy lives. I'm saved regardless of my work, so I don't need to worry about it. But these are both wrong ways to think about holy living. Living like Jesus doesn't save us. Only the cleansing power of Jesus' blood shed on the cross can do that, without exception. Only his blood can save you. But remaining obedient to Jesus is how we identify ourselves as members of his new kingdom. That's how we are set apart. Believe me, we are saved by grace and grace alone. But the question I really want to get into today and I want to ask everybody is what are we saved for? Why is there a gap between our moment of conversion and the ultimate fulfillment of that promise? Why does God leave us here on earth? Why aren't we just zipped up to heaven the moment that we confess Jesus is Lord? And it's because God cares about the in-between, that gap between these two moments. God cares about the way we live our lives. But we often forget this. Some of us probably even ignore this. Dallas Willard, in his excellent book, The Divine Conspiracy, describes what he calls the gospel of sin management. He says this, quote, history has brought us to a point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned 
only with how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing, or wrong being and its effects. Life, our actual existence, is not included in what is now present as the heart of the Christian message, or it is only marginally included. The gospel of sin management says that God only cares about removing the guilt of sin from our lives. The gospel of sin management said that God only cares about getting us into heaven. These are important truths. I cannot stress that enough, but it is an incomplete picture of the gospel. The cross removes the guilt of sin, but it calls us into a life of obedience to our new king. God cares about how we live our life. I'm going to repeat that over and over again, but I, this has got to be drilled into our brain. God cares about the in-between. This is why we have the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdoms have laws, and citizens are expected to abide by those laws. In the Old Testament, Moses ascends to a mountain, and God delivers to the Israelites the Ten Commandments, the laws by which they were to govern themselves as citizens of a new kingdom. In the New Testament, Jesus does the same thing. He ascends a mountain and delivers to us the laws by which we are to govern ourselves as citizens of his new kingdom. Jesus has invited us into his kingdom, and the cross has provided a way for us to enter that kingdom, and all he asks in return is believing loyalty to him. And that belief aspect is significant, because if we don't believe that Jesus is king, then what's the point of our obedience? This is why Jesus' question to the disciple is so important. I don't care who others say I am. They think that I'm, I'm John the Baptist or Elijah or the other prophets but I want to know who do you say I am? And Jesus is asking us ultimately the same question. Who do we say he is? If Jesus isn't king, then how we choose to live our lives is of no consequence. But if he is king, then it matters a great deal. He tells us our sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more. So how do we live in this in-between moment? How do we live with Jesus as our king, Uh, in this new kingdom. When God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he didn't do so without any plan. He gave them a way to live life that was so much better than the enslavement that they just came from. The purpose of the law was not to restrict them in any way. It was actually to create the freedom necessary for them to worship Yahweh unhindered by the chains of Egypt. And when God leads us through the waters of baptism into new life with him, the same transaction is taking place. We are leaving a life enslaved to sin and entering a new life where we now have the freedom to worship and obey God without hindrance. Thankfully, God has provided for us, much like the Israelites, uh, a rule for life. There are three key things. Of course, there's much more than three things, but there are three key things I want to highlight right now that I think we can do to effectively change the way we live our lives and to help mold us into a life that looks more like Jesus. And these three things I want to focus on today are prayer, reading of scripture, and discipleship. So let's break them down. Prayer. This one's easy. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't really get much clearer than that. When Jesus teaches us to pray, the first thing he tells us to do is to desire desire that God's kingdom be here on earth right now. So at the very core of our prayer is this petition, Jesus, make me more like you. 
Because ultimately, that's how God's kingdom is brought here, is when we, as citizens of His kingdom, act as ambassadors to Rome, that is how God's kingdom is brought about. So as we pray, we allow the Spirit of God to shape us into ambassadors for God's kingdom so that we can go out into Rome, go out into the world, and be that light. Second, the reading of Scripture. Last weekend, I was hanging out with somebody from our church, um, and I asked them why they thought it was important that we read Scripture. And he told me this, just simply, Scripture reveals to us the truest image of who God is. And isn't that it? God called us to live like Him. Jesus says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Great. Now what does that look like? Well, it looks like what's revealed to us in Scripture. When we read the Gospels, we fall in love with Jesus and we learn from Him. We read the prophets, we learn about God's desire for justice and righteousness. We read the Psalms and we learn about God's heart for the brokenhearted. We learn these things from Scripture and then we are called to go and mimic them. The third thing I want to talk about is discipleship. The beauty of this life that we are called into is that we don't have to do it alone. God has given us a community of other believers in the church, and He has placed older and wiser people in our lives, mentors, to shepherd us through this, this journey. And we can learn from their lives of obedience as examples and encouragement for us to live in obedience. So get yourself a mentor, someone who can build you up and encourage you, and who isn't afraid to call you out, keep you accountable when you're veering off track. Get yourself a mentor. God has given us pastors, pastors to shepherd us through life, to see the gifts that God has placed in us and to help us realize those gifts in the kingdom, in service of the kingdom. I, if you consider local church your home and you consider Nadia and Levi your pastors, let me just say this, there are no two people who care more about your souls. Their heart is for you. Their heart, they want to see you thrive in a community. So let them shepherd you. Let the other leaders in this church shepherd you. I want to circle back to the question that we've been asking, is who do you say Jesus is? Is he your savior? I hope so. Is he your king? I hope so too. Or is he your savior, but not your king? I feel like there's two types of people in the world that, um, that fall into these two different categories. There are those of us in uh, maybe watching right now who, who we recognize Jesus as our Savior, but we are refusing to acknowledge him as king, or maybe we're just ignorant to the fact that he's king. Well, I want to remind you today that he is your king. And as your king, he requires obedience. But like I said about the Israelites, we can't think of this obedience, these, uh, these rules for life as restricted. They're not meant to drag us down or keep us from having any sort of fun. Rather, the, what Jesus asks of us, it's supposed to give us the freedom to worship him as Savior. Maybe you are watching and Jesus isn't your Savior. So that first step, you're not even there. Well, I just want to invite you today to, to think about acknowledging him as your savior. All of these things we're talking about, a life in obedience to Jesus, it's the same thing. These aren't, 
these aren't rules that are meant to break us down, but these are, this is a way of life that's meant to give us life and to thrive. He says that he came to give us life and life to the abundant, and I think that means life right now. And so if we worship him as Savior, all of these things can come along with that. So I just want to pray for these two groups of people right now as we close up, wherever you find yourself. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are King, Lord. I thank you that you are Savior. And I pray that as we acknowledge you as Savior, that we would acknowledge you as Savior, that we would also acknowledge you as King. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the grace by your Spirit to live holy lives dedicated to you. Amen. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, again, grateful that I could be here sharing with you, and I look forward to seeing you all. Peace.